Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. Why it matters. Money FM 89.3. It's the evening runway. Elliot Dank and Timothy Goen Chuan Tian with you. It's time now to talk about the fight against climate change. And for years, it's been symbolized by one number, 1.5. But if the battle to keep global warming from overshooting this limit has already been lost, well, what's next? Well, research is pointing towards 2024 as a bit of a tipping point as uh, global warming intensifies extreme weather events. The debate over the fate of this whole 1.5 degrees Celsius seems to be heating up in unprecedented ways. And is 1.5 degree climate goal still realistic today? Let's find out more. Will McGoldrick, who is Regional Managing Director, Asia Pacific, the Nature Conservancy, is on the line with us. Uh, Will, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I suppose uh, to start us off, uh, help us understand the term, the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. How is this a critical number? Well, essentially, um, governments have come together around the world to try and cooperate to tackle climate change. And if you're going to cooperate, you need to be knowing if you're working towards a shared target. So a number of years ago, uh, originally, countries were focused on a two-degree target. Mm-hmm. But uh, small island states and more vulnerable countries pointed out that two degrees sort of has a catastrophic level of impact on, on them and their economy. So there was a big push to lower that threshold down to 1.5. Now, just to be clear, there's no safe level of global warming or, or climate change. 1.5 is sort of seen as a as a threshold, um, it's not considered safe by any means. Mm-hmm. It's just once you start getting beyond that, the impacts start to become more and more severe. And the question starts to become as to whether we can really uh, keep the whole thing under control if we really push temperatures much above that threshold. Why is this 1.5 a critical target? Well, first of all, it's a target. And so countries have agreed to it. And that's really important. And, and as you know, in business or in any your personal life, if you don't have a goal, if you don't have a target, it's very hard to stay focused and have direction. It holds us all accountable. Uh, so we need to make sure that our annual carbon emissions at the country level, but also on a personal level or a business level, are aligned with trying to get towards that 1.5 degree uh, level. So businesses should be calibrating their strategies to be consistent with the science about what's required to get to 1.5 degrees. Uh, countries should be doing the same. So it's really critical to have that goal in place. Otherwise, we can't keep each other accountable, we can't stay focused, and, and we sort of lose traction globally. I'm not sure if you came across this news piece from earlier this week that talked about how scientists have found uh, that uh, sponges towards the surface of the Caribbean Sea seem to be indicating that the planet has already warmed by 1.7 degrees Celsius. That's half a degree more than estimates by the UN Climate Panel. I want to talk implications here. You know, Bearing in mind we're having a conversation about that 1.5 sea climate uh, target. Is it even still possible given these latest discoveries that keep coming out? Well, I think it, it, the science is, is obviously improving every year. We, we track our annual emission reductions based on a 20-year average. Um, so sponges are probably giving us a, an assessment okay. for a particular location, and that, that's important. Okay. I, th- I think the key thing here is 1.5 still achievable. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, yes. you know, But the point is really 1.5 is better than 1.7. Right. 1.7 is better than 1.8. And of course, anything above that is, is, is getting, getting really difficult. So the, we've got to shoot for 1.5. If we, if we fail for 1.5, we get to 1.6. That's a hell of a lot better than getting to 2.1 or 2.3 or yeah. whatever, yeah. whatever might, might come otherwise. So the point is to have an ambitious target and go right. for it. 
just like we would in business. Yeah. Fair point. So at the same time, Will, while, while the 1.5 target or 1.6, and we don't want to get to two, two degrees, as you said, but isn't it time for the world to actually also try to figure out how we can survive if we ever get to that two at the same time as trying to reach this 1.5 climate target? Absolutely right. And I think we're already seeing, you might describe them generally as unusual weather, weather patterns. Exactly, um, yeah. I think many of us would, would describe them as scary. Uh, I was in uh, California last week and we had this big, they call it an atmospheric river um, coming across. Now we missed the worst of it. I got out of there, but just the last few days we've seen flooding in Santa Barbara and LA and elsewhere. Um, we've seen, I lived in Hong Kong for a number of years. Last year they had a, a, a terrible event that sort of affected yeah. rich and poor alike with, with mass uh, landslides and and damage to infrastructure and people. So, yes, it's getting it's already getting hotter. It's already getting more dangerous. In some ways, the, the we're putting the climate on steroids. It's becoming more unpredictable and and more extreme um, every year. Uh, so we do have to start adapting. We have to start thinking about the way we design infrastructure, thinking about protecting. Well, well, we're focused, my organisation, the Nature Conservancy, focused on protecting mangroves, for example, which can help with storm surge during typhoons. These types of things become really critical. Um, we can't just focus on reducing emissions, even mm. though that's a critical solution. We yeah. also need to focus on, on responding to the changes. Yeah. Where does education come into play here? And I ask that because it's common to see the younger generation more focused on this, more aware of this. But, you know, at the board level, at the management level, it tends to be the older generation. Are they aware enough? Do they need more education? Or is it just a case of, ah, I'll listen to the younger person that tells me what I should do where climate change is concerned? Encouragingly, so I spent a lot of time um, meeting with business leaders throughout Asia, and and, and there is a, a generational shift happening mm. at the moment. So mm-hmm. the, the the decision making powers are being handed across to a new generation. Nice. Um, but we're also noticing. I don't want to be too hard on the older generation. We we um, we've got we've got part business partners in Indonesia, for example, where the older generation, yeah, they're retiring, they're starting to step back, but they're thinking about their legacy. And we've yeah, had businesses, yeah. businessmen, have been very successful. They look back and they think, I want to leave a positive legacy. So mm. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm an optimist in, uh, optimist in this sense. I like to think that, yeah, maybe the young generation will drive us, you know, towards the 1.5 goal, but the older generation has a really important role to play and, and, um, and they're starting to think about their legacy, which is, which is terrific. I guess speaking for the older generation, you know, we the back of our minds, we would know, like, we've been through so much, we will survive this one and move on. You know, one of the issues, I think, with with uh, the fight for climate change as well are, you know, there's a militant segment of this one who's disrupting certain things and, and you know, uh, to get notice. This must be bad for well, the entire you- campaign, right? I mean, we just had one last week. Look, I'm wary of criticising people's own decisions of what they they want to do. They're they're obviously passionate. They're trying to put the the issue on the agenda, and that's that's really important for me. For me personally, I try to sort of stay focused on providing solutions, working with people to develop solutions mm-hmm. that can be implemented in in the real world. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to speed things. That we should be, you know, that we're going fast enough. We need to speed things up, and it's kind of good to have people on the margins who are telling us that and and ensuring we don't lose sight of the need to have more urgency. At the same time, though, these changes are hard. If you, if you think about the Singapore trying to figure out how to decarbonize its electricity sector, that's hard. Let's not deny that. It's going to take time and it's going to require money and it's going to require innovation. So I don't want to be too hard on those businesses that are trying their best to innovate and drive change. Um, and we're all, we're all in this together. Like, we've got to figure this out together. The same goes with the, you know, if you want to shift to sustainable 
timber production in, the, in, in Indonesia, for example, or sustainable agriculture in China. This requires change. It requires farmers in China, for example, who may be farming a certain way for generations. You've got to have some patience. You've got to have some sympathy and empathy for the people who, who have to implement these changes. Otherwise, we just lose people and we become divided, and that's that's not helpful. It's brilliant you bring up solutions, Will. I understand the role that nature-based solutions can play in achieving uh, temperature reversal. Could you share with us what's available now or, or some examples of nature-based solutions? Interestingly, I mean, everyone knows that burning fossil fuels, like in, in your car, burning oil in your car or, or uh, burning coal for electricity, everybody knows that's one of the biggest and most significant drivers of climate change. Most people don't realise that around a quarter of the annual carbon emissions comes from the land sector. So that's from clearing of forests, from the loss of wetlands, from unsustainable agriculture, for, for example. But if you flip that around and you focus on the, the land sector as a solution, it has the potential to deliver around one third of the emission reductions we need by 2030 if we really go for it. But it's only receiving a tiny fraction of the investment at the moment, I think sort of between one and three percent of the investment. So what we're focused on at the Nature Conservancy is figuring out how do we direct that attention uh, to the land sector. And we're talking about, we're not talking about locking everything up. There are ways to do timber production that is more sustainable, you know, rotating the production of, of, of timber and, and only focusing on certain areas, for example. There's ways to farm more sustainably. And if you farm more sustainably, you can increase the amount of uh, carbon that's stored in the soil. And there's also really important opportunities to restore and protect uh, coast, coastal habitats such as mangroves and, and salt marshes. And these are, these are like the unsung heroes of the natural world. They store, would you believe it, uh, a, a mangrove um, forest can, can store uh, and these blue carbon ecosystems, salt marsh and whatever else can store more carbon per hectare than a rainforest. They're quite amazing, but we've got to protect them. We're losing them at a rapid at a rapid rate still, unfortunately. So, Will, when it comes to implementing all these things that you just talked about and at the same time not slowing the economy down too much so that people don't lose their jobs and industries and can still grow, is this even possible? It's definitely possible. I mean, we've seen economies around the world evolve and change. Um, you know, America, Australia, other places used to have big manufacturing sectors that shifted to other parts of the world. So economies adapt and, and change. We, we know that. We also know that um, the cost of solar panels, uh, for example, or solar electricity has, has reduced by 89% since 2010. Cost of wind power down by about 69%. So innovation and mass deployment of these technologies is driving down the cost and making it actually more cost effective for the economy. So, And then you look at the health benefits. You know, if we get away from, you know, burning fossil fuels, you can take a lot of pressure off national health systems. Um, there's a whole lot of broad economic benefits from this transition, but we've got to be we've got to have a plan governments and business have got to have a plan to really be smart about it and i think the businesses that aren't smart about it you know they risk being left behind so that's that's another thing to keep in mind all right we've been speaking with will mcgolrick who is regional managing director asia pacific for the nature conservancy will appreciate your time today take care and have a great wednesday ahead thanks guys have a good evening bye-bye to listen to more great interviews download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.